Well, May 21st, Ed mentioned it, 4 o'clock here in the afternoon, we're going to have an ordination service for uh, Brett Weston. Hope you can come join us. It's a family time uh, for our family here. Uh, Brett is our uh, resident uh, who's going to be a church planter down the road, and um, this is a big deal. He's you know, labored hard, did a great job of, of uh, standing his ordination exams, and um, also, uh, Brett and Aaron had a baby today, about an hour and a half ago, so they had a little girl. Yeah, so that's very cool. They've got that behind them. I'm sure Aaron is glad that, is, uh, that has happened. And then also, um, today, is it a holiday of some kind? Mother's Day, thank you, Daniel. Yeah, it is Mother's Day, and if you're just finding that out, well, raise your hand, we'll pray for you. <laughs> now, we want to say thank you to moms, and uh, hope that you have a good celebration with uh, the moms in your family uh, this afternoon, and uh, th that it will be very special for them. Um, would you agree? We say thank you to our moms. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So let's pray again. We need to ask God to, to speak to us and teach us. Father God, uh, what an incredible privilege to be in a place where we can gather with others, we can lift up the name of Jesus, be thankful to him for who he is and for what he's done for us, and, and even study, Father, uh, what it means to trust him. We would ask that you now speak to us, each one, and uh, we ask it in this powerful name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Some remarkable words that were written by the, uh, the author of Proverbs. Uh, they're, they're truly remarkable. They're words that a lot of people have actually memorized. I would ask you to read them with me, if you would. They're on the screen. So read these words with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. This morning, we are talking. That's okay. You wanted to let us know where it was, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. When you memorize it, you kind of put that tag on there so you know where it is. This morning, we're talking about the subject of trust. Uh, in particular, of course, trusting God. Uh, the writer of Proverbs advises us to trust the Lord with all your heart. In other words, no holding back, which is something we tend to do. But no holding back, he advises. He tells us that trusting God that way will lead to straight paths. Kind of an interesting statement. I think uh, I would suggest that what he means by that is those straight paths are about leading an uncluttered life or a purposeful life or an impactful life, not necessarily a life without trial or challenge or difficulty. Uh, trust, of course, at least in its most important uh, manifestations, is something that happens between people. Uh, it's what holds the world of personal relationships together. Uh, faith, last Sunday, we said, is, is not simply a set of beliefs about something or someone. Uh, it's actually taking a risk with that someone or that something, that person, that institution, that object. It, it could be a small risk. It could be a big risk. Uh, you know, last week we talked a little bit about rappelling and rock climbing and things of that nature. Trusting a rope uh, would be an example of taking a risk, trusting an object. I trust a plane every time I get on one to fly somewhere. I trust a broker to give me good advice. You know, here's a place to put your money. I trust your restaurant recommendations. 
Um, I trust you to keep a secret if I share a secret with you. And when we trust someone or something, uh, we give a little piece of ourselves to that someone or that something, our stuff, our money, our time, our heart. We, we put it in that person's hands. And that makes me feel vulnerable. I don't know about you, but it makes me feel vulnerable. Trusting someone is always a gift. Um, and when someone proves to be faithful with what we have given them, that's a very special gift given back to us. And that builds trust and that builds the relationship. Trust is the key to all relationships, really. It's integral, in fact, to being a human being. We were made to trust right up until the very day we die. We are creatures who trust. In fact, there can be no intimacy of relationship without trust. None. Parents, children, friends, co-workers all know this. The relationships are all built on trust. In any and all of these relationships, you enter into a, a kind of dance with people. When I trust, then I risk. I risk being vulnerable. Uh, when you're faithful or if I am faithful to you, we build trust. We go to deeper levels of intimacy. The relationship is strengthened. And that's the, just the way the dance works. There's trust and there's risk and there's vulnerability and there's faithfulness or unfaithfulness. And then there's intimacy. If there's faithfulness, the intimacy goes deeper. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes this means we get hurt. It's just a fact of life. Sometimes our capacity for trust gets damaged. You get raised in a family that's highly dysfunctional. There are addictions or destructive behavior or worse, abuse. And you learn that it's really hard to trust people, even people you love and who are supposed to love you. You ask uh, someone for a date and you get turned down. And, and that ever happened to anybody here? It happened to me in high school. Made me think twice or three times about, you know, taking the risk the next time. Or you form a friendship and for whatever reason or in whatever way, you get betrayed and you, uh, you, you really think twice about forming those kinds of relationships after that. You trust an employer or you trust an employee and they prove untrustworthy. This happens to all of us over time. Betrayal, loss, disappointment. These experiences can damage our ability or they can damage our willingness to trust someone else, even to trust God. In this series, we've been uh, talking about faith, talking about the problem of uncertainty in life, talking about the doubts that we have. And we have said that working with our doubts is just a normal, healthy process and part of being a human being. If you're a human being, you don't get to live with absolute certainty about very many things. We have talked about the fact that our doubts can even lead us to places of greater faith, places of deeper trust. But I also need to acknowledge that there are ways that we can respond to the doubts that we have that are not helpful. Uh, ways of responding that do not lead us to places of greater clarity or greater confidence. Ways, in fact, that lead us into darker, more destructive kinds of thinking. And I want to suggest that, and there are probably more than this, but I've thought of three, okay? I want to suggest that there are at least three ways that we don't want to respond when it comes to dealing with doubts that we might have about God. And I would suggest that those ways are skepticism, cynicism, and hardened unbelief. Now, as I said a moment ago, human beings are created and designed for relationships of trust. 
When God made human beings, he gave us a certain amount of freedom, a certain amount of choice. And he told Adam, for example, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, he said, you will certainly die. In other words, God says, not every choice is good for you. You're free to choose, but you're not going to have to, but, but you are going to have to, to risk trusting me for what will lead to an abundant or a good or a fruitful life. Even in the garden, this was true. Even before sin entered the picture, this was true. Even in the garden, there were apparently some questions, some uncertainties. You know, how much does God love me? Does he have my best interest always at heart? Is he going to provide everything for me that I need? Does God want the best for me? And the serpent comes and preys on those very uncertainties. He says to them, he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Which of course is not what God said to them. The serpent's tactic is pretty clever. He calls into question God's trustworthiness. He tries to suggest that God is being kind of stingy. God is holding back, not giving them everything that they might enjoy or that they might need. That God does not have Adam's best interest at heart. God is withholding something is the suggestion. That's the subtext. And if that's true, that would certainly call into question God's trustworthiness, wouldn't it? Now, frankly, this is always what the evil one does. Basically, this one thing, he tries to cast critical doubt on God's trustworthiness. And as we all know, in this case, it worked. Uh, Adam and Eve could have taken their confusion or whatever it was, frustration, questions, what have you. They could have gone to God and said, God, you know, we have a situation here. We're a little troubled. We're, we're not sure what's going on. We're trying to understand this issue with the tree. We'd love to talk. Could you give us more information? We're trying to figure this whole thing out. It occurs to me too, they might have also asked, and why is a snake talking to us? They didn't ask that, but that's just my thought. So I would have asked them. But anyway, you know, you know, Lord, until we hear from you on this, however, we will trust you enough to stick to what you've said. They, they could have had that conversation with the Lord. And I, I would suggest that obedience like that would have been great. It would have worked. It would have actually built trust between them to communicate about what their concerns or fears or questions were. But as you know, Adam and Eve moved in a very different direction. Instead of moving towards God in trust and faith, putting their lives into his hands saying, we'll do what you tell us to do. We'll trust even though we don't fully understand at this particular moment. Instead of doing that, they, they moved away from God in fear, in distrust, in self-reliance. They figured they knew better. And when they did that, they found that what God said would happen did actually happen. Spiritual death and separation. In fact, when they made this decision together, uh, their whole world instantly changed. They start feeling and doing things they had never done before. They're suddenly ashamed. They had never been ashamed before. Ashamed of their nakedness. They feel guilt. They had not felt guilty before. They blame each other. They blame the serpent. They're afraid. And then we find them even hiding, hiding from God who comes looking for them. They are separated. And they are distant from God. And what's worse, they have even more doubt and uncertainty now. It's sadly ironic that what they do creates an even worse situation. 
And truth be told, people have done this same thing ever since. You, you and I kind of live with this similar dynamic. We begin to doubt. And then instead of moving toward God, having a conversation with God, talking to him, taking our doubts to him, we push away and our doubts grow. And our faith withers. And our hope fades. And I would suggest to you what this is, is this is doubt gone bad. And when we do this, it often leads to things like skepticism or cynicism or a hardened heart, hardened unbelief. So I want to talk about these three things with you. Is that okay? Just checking. If it wasn't, I would do it anyway. But anyway, the first one is skepticism. Skepticism is an interesting thing to define as I tried to think about this. I, I think the skeptic would say, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to suspend judgment on this. I'm not going to commit myself to this person, this thing. Just not going to do it. Because as far as I'm concerned, there's just insufficient evidence to convince me. And it sounds objective and it sounds rational, but sometimes I think what's going on underneath the surface for the skeptic has very much to do with fear. He or she is saying, you know, I, I don't want to be wrong. I definitely don't want to be hurt. Uh, I don't want to look gullible or be gullible. I, I don't want to be disappointed in this situation. I'd rather, in fact, stand on the sidelines and look like an intelligent observer rather than risking the possibility of being disappointed again. Uh, the most famous skeptic that we have in the Bible, you, you all know, is Thomas, Thomas the Doubter. Uh, we see him three times in the Gospel of John. It's interesting that every time we encounter um, Thomas, Thomas is being skeptical about something. Um, the climactic incident occurs, of course, after Jesus has come back from the dead. He's resurrected. Jesus had already appeared to the other disciples, and for reasons we don't know, Thomas wasn't with them. Why wasn't Thomas there? Well, again, we don't know. But was he distancing himself from them at this point? Uh, is he thinking, oh my gosh, the movement is over? Uh, is he trying to move on? We, we don't exactly know. But the disciples, we do know, are incredibly overjoyed because their world has been turned upside down. I mean, they all know, just like you and I know, dead people do not come back from the dead, so the movement is over. You know, it's over and done. Now what? What's next? They didn't have answers to those questions. But then suddenly Jesus is back. In fact, in John 20, uh, this is what the disciples are saying. We have seen the Lord. You know, that's, that's what they're telling Thomas, in fact. He's alive. We're not making this up, Thomas. This is the real deal. And, and Thomas has a response to what they tell him that probably, I'm just guessing, stunned them. Because this is what Thomas says. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side... I will not believe it, he says. Wow. Uh, Thomas is skeptical. He's actually doubting Jesus. He's doubting the disciples. He's doubting the ladies who were the first at the tomb to discover the fact that Jesus wasn't there. He was resurrected. And here's the interesting thing. You know, Thomas, like the other disciples, had actually heard Jesus teach about this very thing. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus said these words to the disciples. Thomas was there among them. Jesus said this. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed on the third day be raised to life. Jesus had talked about this on many occasions. 
Thomas had every reason, actually, if we think about it, to trust and to believe. But he chose instead to be skeptical. I think skeptics will sometimes do this. They, they set the demand for certainty so high, they know the demand can never be met. I mean, it looks rational, but underneath it is that thought, you know, what I mentioned a moment ago. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be disappointed yet again. And the danger of skepticism is that good skeptics can get so invested in wanting to win arguments or appearing to be smarter than the others or wanting to avoid disappointment that they will never find enough evidence convincing that will convince them to believe or to trust. And so they never risk, never risk trusting God. Now, the truth is, were it not for for God and for his power, there would be no hope for the skeptics. I mean, take Thomas, for example. I find this so interesting how Jesus moves in Thomas's direction. Jesus knows what his objections are. And we're told that Jesus comes to him in a very special way, which I might add, Jesus often does with skeptics. He kind of meets them exactly on their territory, their turf, their, their set of objections. He says to Thomas in this case, put your finger here. Thomas. He says, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe, Jesus says to Thomas. (laughs) And this is very impactful, as you can well imagine it would be. I mean, Thomas is overcome by this. Here's Jesus meeting him on his terms. Instead of upbraiding him, instead of condemning him, Jesus is answering the exact objections that Thomas, the skeptic, has. And Thomas's response is to fall on his knees and say, my Lord and my God. He, he becomes a full-blown all-in worshiper is, is what happens in Thomas's life. And then Jesus tells Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. He's talking about, you know, people like us, you know, unless you've seen him, you're one of those people that's being discussed there. The, the point is simply this. Jesus can reach us. Jesus can reach skeptics. With Jesus, there is always hope, always hope. Now, uh, there are other forms of doubt, doubt gone bad, if you will, uh, that are even, I would suggest, more uh, dangerous more difficult to come out of than this thing of skepticism, and one of those would be cynicism. Unlike skeptics, people driven by cynicism are not as much looking for answers as they are always offering conclusions, their conclusions. Cynics have been burned along the way, and they've learned to expect the worst out of life and out of people and out of situations. So they don't look for answers as much as they offer conclusions about the world, the culture, and those conclusions are pretty negative, pretty negative. They say things like, uh, life is never fair. They'll say things like, you know, you can't trust people, not anybody. Don't ever trust them. They'll say things like, you know, don't get your hopes up or guaranteed you'll be sorry. Because they know bad things always happen to good people. That's kind of a tenet of cynicism. So, you know, a good God, the idea of there being justice in the world, the idea of there being fairness or that someday all things will be sorted out, that's, that frankly is just wishful, foolish thinking, says the cynic. I wonder, do you ever think like that? 
Are you sitting next to someone who thinks like that? You can jab them in the, in the ribs if you want. You know, this, uh, there are examples of the cynic in all kinds of literature. Uh, if you've ever read Othello, Iago and, and Othello is, a, is definitely a cynic, perfect example of a cynic. Um, I was told that I'm mispronouncing this. Now I don't remember how to pronounce it correctly. Thinadir and Les Mis, you know, uh, the, the, the crook, perfect example of the cynic. Uh, Ivan Karamazov and Brothers Karamazov, perfect example of the cynic. Usually these folks think the way they think because of previous pain or disappointments, because of the things that have happened in their life or that life has done to them. And it leads them to a rather self-centered, kind of uh, amoral, despairing kind of life. They've learned that they better say and do things to advance themselves because no one else will, you see. And sometimes they excuse their behavior, the way they respond to others or the, to the needs of others, their insensitivity, their cruelty, their disinterest. Because after all, nothing really matters except me, making sure I'm taken care of. And in this way, I think too, cynicism is kind of a cover to avoid having to accept any kind of responsibility for anything happening around them. I, I, I think I'm right in saying that perhaps when we open the Bible, Pontius Pilate is an example of a cynic. Uh, in Jesus' day, Pontius Pilate was a, the highest-ranking uh, Roman official in Judea in that area. He was educated. He was powerful. He was certainly very, very wealthy. Uh, and so when Jesus, a simple Jewish carpenter, is drugged before him... Uh, and Jesus makes the claim that he could testify to the truth. That's, you read it, that, that's essentially the claim that Jesus makes. Do you remember how Pilate responded? He says, what is truth? Remember that? What is truth? That's the cynic. No one knows truth. No one can be certain of anything. What kind of knowledge do you think you have? What kind of difference do you think you're going to make? Why don't you stop trying to save the world, Jesus, and all of this trouble would go away for you? You see, Pilate is not so much seeking answers as he is trying to avoid responsibility and keep himself out of the political and religious mess that he's surrounded with. He doesn't want to wrestle with the truth. That's the point. We read in Matthew 27, it says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere and that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands and in front of the crowd and he said, I, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. In other words, Pilate's you know, passing this off, trying to, on others. I'm washing my hands of this, not my problem. There's nothing I can do. This, this is of no concern to me whatsoever. A 21st century cynic would inject the word here, whatever. Whatever. And I would just say to you, folks, cynicism is a very bad, rather empty way to live. It doesn't produce much joy. It doesn't live for things like truth and goodness or for others. It usually seeks to advance uh, itself, primarily because it's mostly given up. A cynic finds that he or she can dismiss any talk about truth by simply saying, whatever, you see. And that absolves them of any need to take claims like the claims that Jesus was making, take any claims like that seriously. A cynic, when facing a difficult decision, 
when facing a, a, something where they might be morally responsible for what's happening to a neighbor, uh, facing a choice that may be unpopular, when facing some of life's most difficult questions like, is there a God? Does he exist? And if he does exist, what are my duties that, uh, of which I owe to him or my duties that I owe my neighbor? Uh, a cynic will just, again, use that phrase, you know, what is truth? Whatever. And they use that kind of an approach just to dismiss the whole conversation. The danger of cynicism is that it isn't an answer to anything. It's just a way to avoid the question. It's a way to avoid taking personal responsibility. And it often leads to a very disillusioned, self-absorbed kind of life because the only time you really care about anything is when it affects you personally. And let me just say again, the only one who can deliver someone out of this very difficult place called cynicism is Jesus. Jesus calls the cynic uh, to look at his or her own ideas. You know, what do you believe? Jesus calls the cynic to look at their own brokenness or own, their own failure, their own shortcomings instead of everyone else's, which the cynic does a pretty good job of assessing everybody else. Everybody else is broken. Everybody else needs fixing. Everybody else is a mess. You know, in John 18, uh, it's interesting to me how Jesus uh, interacts with Pilate. Pilate asks Jesus this question, are you the king of the Jews, he wants to know. That's what they're accusing him of. And Jesus right away fires right back and says, is that your own idea? He wants Pilate to process his own idea. Or did others talk to you about me? And then Pilate tries to deflect. Again, am I a Jew? Pilate replied, I was your it was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? He asks. And, and Jesus is very direct, very honest. In fact, the conversation that Jesus has with Pilate here is, is quite a bit more direct than his conversation with just about any of his other accusers where he oftentimes just remains silent. Jesus responds back to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And again, look how Jesus responds. Jesus says to him, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. There is truth. I'm here to testify about it. And everyone, he says, on the side of truth listens to me. Remarkably clear. Remarkably direct. It's exactly what a cynic needs to hear. Jesus is saying, you know, I could do something about your cynicism. I can give you a truth worth living for. I can give you a reason to love and to serve the people around you. I can make your life be about more than just you, Pilate. That's what he's saying. And that's really the only cure for cynicism. It really is. Otherwise, the cynic will just become more and more judgmental and disillusioned and discontented and self-absorbed. And sadly, Pilate responds with a deflection. What is truth? You know, we don't know what happened in the life of Pilate. Um, almost certainly he, 
He did not become a, a Jesus follower. At least he didn't in this particular moment in time. If he did, it would have been later in his life. But I, I have a hunch, and it's all it is. I have a hunch this little conversation that Pilate had with Jesus haunted him the rest of his life. That's, that's a hunch. Because Jesus was one of the very few people that ever came right back to, what are your ideas, Pilate? What do you think? There is truth. You can know it. And he who believes in the truth listens to me, you see. I don't know. Just my hunch. Now, there's one more thing we need to talk about. One more destructive direction that doubt can take you. And that's this thing of hardened unbelief. Are you still with me? This is where, this is a pretty severe case of doubt gone wrong, right? When you get to the place of hardened unbelief. Hardened unbelief is a refusal to trust. It's, it's not uncertainty about some intellectual question. It's not an honest wrestling with, with real questions. It's actually a very, it's a settled decision of the will is what it is. The condition of a person in hardened unbelief is not just that they don't believe. It's that they won't believe. Uh, they do not want the story of Jesus to be true. They, they do not want to live in a kingdom governed by the kind of father that Jesus himself trusted in and talked about and constantly prayed to. Usually that's, to, that's because they are very heavily invested in a different kingdom, one that advances them, their purposes, things that they want. So when they hear of Jesus talking about losing your life to find it or taking up your cross to follow him or loving your enemies or serving others, that is not a message they're even remotely interested in embracing. And I think this mindset best describes a group that we find in the New Testament. This group as a whole, there were individual exceptions, but as a whole, they just consistently and persistently tried to get rid of Jesus. And I'm talking about, obviously, the Pharisees. These were learned men. They were knowledgeable of the Jewish scriptures. They were looked up to and kind of revered in that culture, in that society. They had social, political, and spiritual power. And to be honest with you, they felt really good about all this. <laughs> this was good as far as they were concerned. And consequently, they didn't want anyone or anything changing the system, especially a nobody like a Jewish carpenter, a nobody like Jesus, somebody who hadn't come from the right families, somebody who did not have the right educational pedigree, somebody who didn't seem to appreciate their exalted status before the people. Do you know that Jesus had actually insinuated that the Pharisees were just like everybody else. They too were sinners in need of rescue, in need of spiritual change and transformation. Jesus went around saying that was the status of everybody, all people everywhere. Kings, counselors, governors, rich young rulers, demon-possessed, blind, mutes, and so, and even the Pharisees. Everybody had the same problem. Everybody needed to be spiritually redeemed and rescued. They needed spiritual rebirth. And that said, Jesus is what he came to accomplish. And in the process to make Jesus' identity clear because he didn't want there to be confusion around this, he did and he said many things that only the son of God would say or do. I mean, stuff like virgin births. How many have witnessed that before? Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like healing, 
people who were blind from birth, people who were mute from birth, people who were lame from birth. Things like walking on the waters, something the disciples saw this, could never forget, actually wrote about it. Things like calming a storm, raising the dead, coming back from the dead himself. You know, all of these things, incredible things, all evidence and testimony to him being the son of God, the Messiah, the one who is the truth. And yet we see the Pharisees respond to this kind of thing uh, in typical fashion, the way somebody who's hard-hearted does. In Matthew chapter 12, the... uh, I want to read this to you and ask you to listen carefully. In Matthew chapter 12, there is this encounter. uh, And it's in the context of indisputable evidence of of Jesus' identity. We read read this, that then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished. And they said, could this be the son of David, it, this just might be the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, they're thinking. But look at the contrast. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts, and so he said to them, and here again, it's so interesting, he's dealing with people with hard hearts, and yet he moves in their direction to address their objections and to try to correct their thinking. Well, it, it, it's incredible grace. Uh, is what it is. He says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. It's just a fact. If Satan drives out Satan, like you're accusing uh, me of being here, uh, doing this by the power of Satan, then he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So be warned, he's saying. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house, that would be Satan, and carry off his possessions, that would be people in bondage to him, unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can rob his house. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's robbing the house of Satan. It says, he who is not with me is against me. He's he's making the demarcation clear to these Pharisees who are against him. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Wow. These are people attributing the very work of God, God the Holy Spirit, to the evil one, to the devil. I mean, they're witnessing what's going on right in front of them, but they're coming to the conclusion that the devil is doing this, not God. And that says, Jesus, that's unforgivable. An informed, willful denial of the true identity of Jesus, refusing to accept any evidence, attributing Jesus' authority and Jesus' power to the evil one. That is the quintessential definition of hardened unbelief. And when you see it and you, you read it like we just did, kind of takes your breath away. It's, it's, it's remarkable, really, in the face of such evidence that the truth can be denied. Now, I want you to shift gears with me for a little bit, kind of 
figure out if we can how to take this, how to apply this, how to respond to this. You know, all of this talk about our responses to truth or dealing with doubts that we have in our lives naturally raises some questions, personal questions, at least it ought to. At least I hope it does for you because it has for me all week long. And I would love for you to feel as bad as I do about this. <laughs> and of course, this applies to people who, um, not just to people who do not follow Jesus, this, this stuff applies to those of us who say that we do. Questions like, what am I doing with what I know about Jesus? That's a loaded question. Do I let what I know about Jesus or what I say I believe about Jesus, do I let that transform me? Do I let it change my use of time? Do I let it infect and organize my priorities? Do I let it affect the things that I treasure? Does what I know about Jesus translate practically into how I live my life? That's kind of the, the question for many of us. Or, and here's the part that was bothering me all week, or, or do I, I say one thing, you know, I believe, like, like we were saying earlier, but then I actually live a lot like a skeptic. No, I can't really know. Not going to really commit. Or, or like the cynic. Yeah, I just don't care. What I really care about is me. And even worse, live like the person with a hardened heart who really does just care about them. They've got a kingdom they want to build. It's their kingdom, right? You know, we can all claim to follow Jesus, and, and the truth be told, most of us here do. But do we really trust him? Another way of asking that is, do we really obey him? Do we really follow him? This was bothering me all week as I was examining my own heart on these things. Are we so invested in living our own lives the way we want to live them, doing our own things or building our own kingdoms that we really don't care that much about his or about him? And so I would just ask you to reflect on this. And I, I would ask you, is Jesus saying anything to you? I mean, is there anything, a behavior, a practice, maybe even a success that you're experiencing, a, a comfort, a pursuit, a cause, an addiction that's keeping you from following Jesus and trusting Jesus the way you should? I think that's a loaded question has been for me this week. You know, it's sad to say, I do know people who, who say they believe in Jesus, but they live more like skeptics or, or cynics or even people with hardened unbelief. They don't really follow Jesus. Not practically, not, you know, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Not, not in their priorities, not in their commitments, not in their investments of time or their use of, their talents and skills and spiritual gifts, not, not when it comes to their resources. It's as if they, they choose not to listen. I, I don't want to hear that. I'll be, I'll be the skeptic. You know, doing my own personal examination, I found Jesus convicting me and saying, Dwayne, you could trust me more in this, in this area. Do you want to hear what area it is? It's none of your dang business. <laughs> 
Yeah, mind your own business on that. I mean, I'll share it with the people I need to share it with. But here's the thing. If we live our lives that way, frankly, refusing to trust and, and commit and do life with him the way he invites us to, honestly, we're just, we're missing out. And I would encourage you, you know, don't miss the joy. Don't miss the purpose. Don't miss the satisfaction that comes from knowing you are doing life with him. You are imitating him. You are following him, no matter the price. Uh, and I would encourage you, if don't ignore his voice. If he's saying anything at all to you in any area, don't live your life keeping a distance from Jesus. That is what the skeptic does. That's even in a worse case. That's what the cynic does. That's what the person who's living a life of hardened unbelief does. I, I don't care what he says. I'm going to do this. I want you to listen to him again. I mean, th this passage is so insightful. We've become almost too familiar with it, so, so much so that we kind of take it for granted. This is Proverbs 3 again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Hold nothing back. Do not lean on your own understanding. Aha! That's the problem, isn't it? Somebody in the first service was pointing, they said the hard part of this verse is that part right there. Because I always think my understanding is better than God's. But the writer of Proverbs says, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That's the promise. And here's the thing. He loves you. He loves you more than your mother. Think about that. We can chuckle, but it's true. He calls you to a place of trust and repentance and faith. He calls you to a love-filled relationship. He calls you to a life of meaning. And so this morning, if you're hearing God calling you at all, if you're feeling any kind of tug from Jesus on any of these things we've been ranging over, understand that is God the Spirit speaking to you, supernaturally working in your life, calling you to himself, just the way Jesus called Thomas, Pilate, and the Pharisees. Because he loved all of them the way he loves you and me. And this morning, again, you know, you have an opportunity to move towards God as opposed to away from him. This is what Thomas did. This is even what the Pharisees did. You know, in spite of the kind of the collective mindset of the Pharisees, there were many exceptions. Many of them became followers of Jesus. We read in John 12 that many, even among the leaders, in particular the Pharisees, believed in him. They, they decided there's no better one to trust. There's no better way to live. We've, we've got to change. And I would remind all of us that we can do that right now. You can do that right where you sit. You can do that in prayer. You can tell Jesus that, Jesus, I am listening. I hear what you're saying to me. And Jesus, I need your help. And you can tell him that you want to obey and you want to trust. You want to listen. You want to believe. He loves that prayer. You tell him you pray that prayer, he will come into your life and he will strengthen you. He will give you what you need to 
reorder your priorities or make appropriate commitments, whatever area he's speaking to you about. You know, last Sunday I, I asked people to raise their hand. We, we don't often do this, but, you know, for those who were making a commitment to Jesus and, and, and making some commitment that God wanted them to make, we had over a dozen people respond to this. And I would just say to you, you know, if, if God is speaking to you in some way this morning, respond to him, listen to him. Don't ignore the movement of the Spirit of God um, in your life. Because it, when we do, that, that starts us down a path of skepticism and cynicism and even hardened hearts. Now, I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads with me. If God is speaking to you on a range of, of things and you are listening to him, I would really like to pray for you. And I, I would just ask you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand as an identification of the fact that God is at work and he's talking to me. And Wow, okay, wow. Let me pray for you. Father, we believe in the supernatural. We believe that you can speak to us and guide us, obviously, most clearly through your word, but oftentimes through messages we hear, through friends who love us, family, and, and uh, Lord, we want to get better and better at tuning our ear to hear clearly from you. And I thank you, God, that there are some here this morning that, that you are communicating with about commitments or steps or things that they might need to do. And I, I just pray for them, God. I pray that the word that has been spoken would, would fall on good soil and, and that, God, you would, you would keep the evil one away who we are told sometimes comes and snatches the seed. God, may that not happen in us. We want to be a community that's getting better and better and better at hearing from you and then obeying you and trusting you and doing the things that give you glory and give you honor. We all need help with this, Father. And I pray for these folks that raise their hand. I pray that you would strengthen them, encourage them, convince them of your love and your mercy and your grace. Give them everything they need to follow through, Lord, on whatever it is you're calling them to do. And may you continue your work in us as a community. May we look like and act more like Jesus every day. We ask all of this in his precious, glorious, wonderful name. Amen.